Well, thanks very much, Colin, and uh, we are extraordinarily blessed in this city to have uh, Colin organising so many of these, uh, these events. Uh, he's a, uh, a Canberra treasure for those of us who love books. Uh, and for those of us who love books, uh, this book is indeed a great treasure. Uh, it uh, sizzles like the sausage in the title, uh, has many wonderful tales about the birth of Australian democracy, and I'll be surprised if by the time you've finished it, you don't feel, like me, a little bit prouder of the Australian democratic system. Uh, but Judy, I, I first want to commend you on uh, branching out. Uh, apart from your quarterly essays, as best I know, you've only written books about liberals, so it's, uh, it's lovely that you've, uh, you've branched beyond that. Uh, and I wanted to ask you a question that you say you ask your students on their first day of uh, class. What's your earliest political memory? Yes. Um I think it's, I was born in 1949, so I'm a baby boomer, and my father was a public servant um, with, with the PMG as it then was. And he was like a sort of Whitlam sort of figure, like in the Whitlamite public servant. He was a social democrat, so he was a very staunch Labor voter, support, uh, admirer of Chifley, but we didn't have, with no contact really with the trade union movement. And I, I have this memory, there must have been an election sometime in that long wilderness years of the 50s for Labor. Uh, and I, I just have this memory of there being a sort of gloom in the house uh, and a sense from Dad that things were stacked against Labor. Um, my mother, I think, I also remember that you didn't talk about politics in, you know, when you had visitors or with other family members. I think they would be my early memories. And that mum, certainly at the state level, it's in state elections, like the local member who was a Liberal and voted for him. Yes. So it's, it's, it's I guess, a very similar like, to my students, where you remember the sort of political loyalties of your family. Mm, mm. And I guess given the way in which the uh, split in the Labor Party ripped whole, whole families apart, not talking well, we about politics. we weren't Catholics. You, you didn't. <laughs> so you, I don't think I don't I don't remember anything about that. Yeah. Um, I How think it was it was just more that um, probably the relatives um, voted probably voted liberal most of them and we were quite involved in the local Anglican church. My father mm. was on the vestry and that sort of thing, so um, he probably didn't want to talk about it. So you could talk about religion, but not about politics. Yes, and the other memory I have, you know, when I became more interested in politics, Dad had read Tawney's Religion and the Rise of Capitalism when he was um, a student and he had a year in the army. And so I was actually sort of believed that liberals weren't very Christian. <laughs> because that was memory, because, they, because of the sort of profit motive, you know, mm. there was mm. around, around capitalism. So it's an accident that I ended up writing so much about the Liberal Party. I'm going to resist the temptation now to derail this entire discussion and go into your family background and your political upbringing, which sounds fascinating, um, and delve into some of the great stories that you have. Um, one of my favourites is uh, South Australia uh, extending uh, the, uh, the franchise to women in 1894. Can you tell us how that happened, and particularly about the yeah. poison pill that opponents attempted to insert into the legislation? Yes, there was... Um there was a debate, obviously, you know, in, in, the, in the Legislative Assembly, um, and it looked like 
there was a lot of support for um, women getting the vote and that was likely to get through. So some opponents thought, ah, we'll fix that. We'll move an amendment which says women can also stand for parliament. This is such an absurd idea that that will clearly uh, blow, you know, blow, that, blow this out of the water. But the, the, liber the, the Liberals who were pushing for um, just accepted it. And so it turned out, I mean, the women hadn't asked for this, uh, <laughs> that, that they ended up getting the right to stand for parliament as well as to vote. So that's, yeah. It's it was extraordinary. A, it was a good own goal, you know. <laughs> and it is such a point of pride for Australians. Um, in counterpoint to how we treated Indigenous Australians when it came to voting, uh, we didn't have a, a national ban, but as you point out, uh, a number of states had property qualifications, other states limited based on uh, if you were receiving welfare, you couldn't, you couldn't vote. Why were we so advanced on extending the franchise to women but yet so retrograde on limiting it to Indigenous Australians? Well, I think it's part of the you know, continuing problem that settler Australians have had in really acknowledging that the land was already owned by other people before we came. Um, we now, much more acknowledgement of that, but there's, but, you know, there's so much damage has been done to Indigenous societies and cultures and Indigenous individuals that it's very hard for us. But I, at, at that point, I mean, one of the things that I found interesting when I was doing the research that I actually didn't know, I, I knew, you know, I knew that um, in the 1902 legislation about who was going to vote for the new Commonwealth, women got the vote and Indigenous Australians lost it. But what I didn't know was that um, the bill that Richard O'Connor, who was the leader in the, in the Senate, and he introduced the legislation for the government, was that there was no bans on, 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 any, on race of any sort in, the legis in, in that. Um, and he fought really hard to not have Aboriginal people excluded from, from voting, but he was unable to, to pass that legislation. The government was, didn't, was minority government, it didn't control, uh, it didn't you know, have the sort of disciplined parties that we now have. And particularly there was opposition from members of parliament from Queensland and Western Australia. And at that period in the 1890s, 1900, I mean there's still frontier wars going on in the Kimberleys, uh, there's massacres happening. There would have been a lot of those parliamentarians would have known that. That doesn't ever enter into the debates. But when I was reading the, the terrible things that were being said, I was thinking, now, what's going through their heads? You know, they, they, um, was there a fear that, you know, in giving, in giving Indigenous people the vote, you were rec giving them a, a recognition of equality, which would actually... Um, lead to much more demand for proper equality before the law and for investigation of a lot of these massacres which were happening. I mean, they weren't legal, but they were sort of, there's a lot of blind eyes. Mm. You talk uh, in the book about a whole range of democratic innovations for yes. Australia, and I'll, I'll skip over a, a couple on uh, the secret ballot, which people in other countries sometimes call the Australian ballot, and the extraordinarily comprehensive 1903 role that you tell the story of, uh, to jump to preferential voting. Um, why did my party, the Australian Labor Party, oppose preferential voting in 1906? Oh, because it was much to its benefit. <laughs> because, Explain uh, that. Yes. The, um, 
there was uh, a farmers' party basically emerging, and they were anti-labour, not or non-labour, and they were dividing. Basically, there was a danger that the non-labour vote was was being split between a farmers' party and the the what do they call at that point the uh, the nationalists who had been the the, the old, we'll call them the Liberal Party, which was the sort of city-based non-labour party. Now. What had happened was in a by-election, Labor had actually won an election, um, you know, with, I can't remember the exact figures, but say it was 30, 30, 40 to Labor and the Labor candidate gets in. So the Farmers' Party was basically saying, if to, said to the nationalists, who at that stage Billy Hughes is the Prime Minister, if you don't introduce this, this is what's going to happen. We will run candidates, it will split the non-Labor vote, and Labor candidates will get in. So, of course, Labor thought it was great. So then uh, Billy Hughes switches parties, uh, becomes... Uh, yes, he switches in 17. In 17. And then in 1918, uh, in, why, why does he then go about uh, introducing preferential voting? Well, basically because they were being threatened. You know, like the, there was a series of by-elections coming up where if it was repeated, Labor candidates were going to win in what were clearly not Labor electorates. Mm. Um, and so, and then the country, and the country party had, was forming, it had, it had seen the success of the Labor Party in um, being, if you like, the political wing of the trade union movement. There were farmer pressure groups, settler, uh, farmer and settler associations, which were working as, pressure, as rural pressure groups, pressuring the city-based Liberals, but they thought, Actually, we'd do a lot better if we had our own people in, in the parliament. Like Labor has got working men in parliament, we want farmers in the parliament. So preferential voting allows you to have two parties of, of a similar ideology yes. operating in coalition. Yes, and what it means yes, is that, that the candidate who wins is the candidate least disliked <laughs> rather than most liked. Um, which didn't work out so well for James Scullin, as you point out. Uh, one of the first casualties of preferential voting when he stood for Karangamite in 1918. Uh, would have won on first past the post, but you point out didn't win on preferential. Yes, well, you know, Karangamite was not exactly a Labor hotbed, you know. Mm. It's, uh, I mean, it may go Labor at the next election, though. It's uh, looking pretty um, grim for Sarah Henderson there, I think, but it's been a bit of social change since then. And well, I think while many Australians might recognise that uh, preferential voting is, uh, is unusual, as is compulsory voting, which we'll come to as a mo in a moment, um, we may not be so aware that Saturday voting is also unusual. The Americans uh, uh, vote on Tuesday because it's not market day. It wasn't market day back in the uh, 19th century. The Britons vo British vote on Thursday because it was market day. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and yet we've, we've got this tradition of Saturday voting. Well, what led to that, uh, in the inception of that in 1913? Well, it, it was first um, Queensland uh, started voting on a Saturday in the late 19th century. Um, and then when Labor uh, won government in 1910, it introduced a, a big overhaul of the Electoral Act and, and legislated for Saturday voting. And, you know, it had been introduced in Queensland because it was market day, <laughs> it was the day that the farm, or it was the day the farmers came to town to do their shopping. Mm. Uh, but it was very successful, and it, it, 
I mean, we think, I mean, it just seems common sense and it's the day, you know, people had half holidays. A lot of people worked Saturday mornings, but they had the afternoons off. It was a great boon for women because it meant that their husbands were home in the afternoon. They could all go to the polling booths together. Women were still, polling booths had a bit of a reputation for being a rowdy place where sometimes there were fights, you know, there had been in the past. Uh, so they could go with their husbands or their husbands could look after the kids while they went. Um, and so it, it's given, I think, uh, our elections a more communal feel, you know, mm. which is what the democracy sausage part of the title is about. And now to the big one, compulsory voting. Uh, you push back on this notion that it was just an accident that suddenly it happened in 1924. Um, one of the most beautiful little bits of the uh, the book I found was your reference to this 1876 editorial uh, from the Melbourne Herald, Melbourne isn't it? Herald, yes. uh, supporting supporting compulsory voting in terms which uh, seems to, uh, to seems to be almost identical to those in which it's uh, are ultimately accepted. Um, but then you talk about this this period in the early part of the 20th, 20th century, where there's a lot of uncertainty about who would benefit. Talk to us about what they th who they thought would benefit in this era before opinion polls. Yes, well, the Conservatives, uh, the, the, the um, comment that, uh, that Andrew refers to from the Herald was saying, look, compulsory voting is a very good thing because it means that elections are not decided by the partisans of either end. It means that the people not that interested in politics but who probably have sounded judgment uh, will <laughs> we'll we'll, you know, go to the polls and determine the election and that would be a good thing. And so early on, when um, there was compulsory voting bills were introduced, particularly in Victoria, um, in the around 1907, 1908, by conservative premiers, because they thought that it would get the lazy middle class out to vote and that that would be good for them, mm. or the conservative farmers in the back blocks for whom it was an effort to go to the polls. Um, Labor was... Uh, fairly thought that it might actually benefit them, you know, so that really neither side knew that there was a sense. And it was first introduced by um, a Conservative government in Queensland in 1915 who was facing annihilation at the polls. How did it work out for them? It, they got annihilated. <laughs> <laughs> for 15 years, right? <laughs> yes. yes, you know, they lost. And then the Labor Party thought, ah, maybe this is a, this is a, good, this is a good idea. And, and so Labor then took it up, but there, Labor did have, there was, there was a stumbling block, which was if you had compulsory voting, you had to have postal voting, because you know people who couldn't get to the polling booth had to be able to, to vote. Now Labor was very, uh, at this stage, was adamantly opposed to postal voting. It believed the secret ballot was fantastic, you know, and, and was sacred, that something was, and, and that the person in the ballot box on their own with their pencil and bit of paper was, was almost, was, had to be protected. And they thought that if there was postal voting, there were, it opened the way for intimidation um, for employers, for example, a squatter who would line up all of his workforce and get them to do their postal votes. Mm. For doctors, doctors were extremely suspect because they, of course, visited sick people and they could get all their sick patients to apply for postal votes. And uh, as there's one quoted where Labor says, you know, he said he'd make sure they did the right thing. So Labor opposed postal voting. And it wasn't really until 
Labor gave up on that, that the way was cleared for, for compulsory voting. So they've been talking about this, there's been co public conversation about yes. compulsory voting for the best, better part of half a century. Yes. Herbert Payne introduces a private senator's bill uh, in the parliament. Needless to say, this is a, a big debate which rages for weeks, right? No, it lasts an hour, I think. What did I say? Or is it a day? It goes through in a day. You say an hour. It's, it's almost <laughs> unbelievable. Yes. One, one opponent. Yes. Why was there so little opposition, given that the Conservative forces in Parliament should at this stage have known that the Queensland experiment suggested it would advantage Labor? Uh, look, I think um, there's a couple of reasons. One, one is that in the Victorian no, Parliament, Federal Parliament is sitting in Melbourne. The Victorian Parliament had had uh, a staunch Labor guy, from, he was the member for Richmond, who had introduced a compulsory voting bill every year, right, in the Victorian Parliament. And all the pressure groups, the Australian Women's National League, which was actually a conservative group who were, supported women in the home, the farmers, um, the, even the political parties, they actually all, the, they all supported compulsory voting. And every year when Ted, I can't remember his name now, um, would introduce his bill, they would write letters to the paper saying it was a good thing. So I think that helped create an atmosphere amongst the federal parliamentarians who were all in Melbourne. They could see that there was quite a lot of popular support. The second thing I think is the, the war. Um, the, the, as you would know, there'd been these two very bitter debates about the rights of the government to conscript people for overseas service. Uh, the, they'd been lost, but the conservative forces, you know, the churches, the conservative academics, the, um, the loyalists, the Liberal Party turned Nationalist Party, had just spent, you know, a couple of years arguing for the right of the state to compel people to go to war. So they weren't in a very good position to start bringing up arguments about freedom of conscience mm. and liberty mm. and... Um, and you know the individual. So I, so there's almost, there's barely a peep out of anybody saying this is an infringement of liberty. And I think and I think that's that's really interesting. And I also think that Australians were much more worried about having their government supported by the majority of the electors and the legitimacy that that gave to a government than they were about a, what's actually a pretty minor infringement on your liberty. Mm. You know? And the, uh, the impact on uh, the electorate is seismic, right? Yes, so the, all of a sudden I think there's a 30% increase in the turnout. has a big impact on women's votes because women were still, they'd had the vote since 1900, but, you know, some of the older women were not that interested in politics and, you know, so it, 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 it increases women's vote. Um, so, yeah, and then it get, so the turnout goes up to, you know, the low 90s which is where it basically stayed. And it, you, uh, you make the point that it also then has an impact on policy. For example, you contend that without compulsory voting, Medicare could well have been uh, scrapped during yeah. some of those contentious elections in the uh, 80s and early 90s. Yes. Well, because I'd always thought that the big argument for compulsory voting was a, was a sort of egalitarian argument, um, which was that the politicians who were, you know, touting for the votes have to realise that uh, poor people and marginalised people vote as well as well-off people. I mean, and that we can see that in the United States and all the political science studies show that the people who are, who are less likely to vote tend to be 
less well educated to live in poorer areas and that sort of thing. So, I, I, and I think that that is the case. I do think, you know, that when that, I mean, even another example, the, um, the Joint Select Committee on Electoral Matters, during the 90s when Nick Minchin and Erica Betts were on it, put in recommendations that we get rid of compulsory voting. John Howard said he agreed with that, but it wasn't popular and he wasn't going to push it. Mm. That is, you know, so I think it, it's, it's a, it's a, the, it makes the politicians realise they've got to try to appeal across, you know, obviously not the whole, the whole spectrum, but a fairly wide spectrum. And, that, and we, you know, we, it's a truism that gets repeated around election times that Australian elections are won in the centre. And they're won in the centre, I think, because we have compulsory voting. And you do make this very positive case. You say, uh, you say we're good at elections. Yes. Um, but I want to push you on a couple of aspects of that. I and mean, you've, you've referred to one, what you call the voluntary voting uh, zealots. Uh, people, people like Nick Minchin, Campbell Newman, you also yeah. mentioned, tried to get rid of compulsory voting. Uh, the Howard government attempting to ban uh, prisoner, prisoner voting. Um, last year, a coalition report recommending voter identification yeah. Yeah. Be, be required. Uh, where's this, uh, this, this push to reduce the franchise coming from? Oh, look, I think it just comes from um, Liberals using the Rep American Republican playbook and, uh, you know, thinking they'd, they'd give it a go. And, they, and, and there's a sort of libertarian fringe, I think, on the Liberal Party, mm. you know, and um, on, on the right of the party. But the Liberal Party on the whole, I think there was a survey done at one point which said that the majority of Liberal parliamentarians actually supported compulsory voting. The National Party is a, very, is a very strong supporter of it. So I think it's the sort of thing where, it's, where it's the, there are some zealots who, mm. who think this, but it, hasn't, it doesn't have any, it doesn't speak to anything in, a, in our political culture. Uh, and the other thing, I mean, you, I don't, you might be going to ask me about this, but I'm going to say it anyway, yes. which is that the Australian Electoral Commission is one of the reasons our elections are also so fantastic because we have a non-partisan body running our elections and uh, which is again a huge contrast with the United States and which happened very early here that public paid public servants ran our elections rather than local officials or party officials another aspect of uh, compulsory voting is of course the extent of the compulsion and there was yeah. a report done by the Australia Institute on uh, looking at the uh, decline in voter turnout. 2016 election had the lowest turnout rate of any election since compulsory yeah. voting was put in place. And they suggested that one of the factors could have been that in real terms the fine in 1924 was about $160 and now it's down to $20. Uh, do you, uh, to, to what extent do you think that's, uh, that, that's driving the decline in voter turnout? Oh, that the, the punishment's not, not enough. The, the, the punishment in real, ter real terms well, has never been lower. I, I think it's, it's also been a bit of sort of indifference because, in fact, the AEC put out a, um, a press release a couple of weeks ago saying that actually the role going into this next election is the biggest ever. And the reason for that is the same-sex marriage survey, um, which is another own goal. Um, <laughs> because the, um, there was a huge... Uh, campaign by activists and by the Australian Electoral Commission to get young people to register um, and update their, their, their details and that's actually made the role yeah. 
bigger than it was, and so so I mean, and it's we've we've done a lot in recent years. Well, the Australian Electoral Commission has to make it easy for people uh, who move around a lot. Um, there's now automatic updating of, of people's information using the, using things like the motor registration boards and um, so, and that, that's new and no no other countries as far as I can see do that I mean from early on and this was driven by labor we made absentee voting very easy uh, because labor had worked hard to uh, recruit people to the unions the rural workers to the unions and it wanted these people to be able to vote so it didn't want which was the, the, the norm, you know, the, the way it was in Britain was you were registered to a polling booth and near where you lived and to vote you had to go to that polling booth. Now if you're a shearer out somewhere, how are you going to get back to Redfern to vote at your polling booth, you know? So they made it that you could vote, uh, they pushed into the, put into the early legislation that you could vote at any electoral booth in your state. And this is 1900, this is very early, so this flexibility in absentee voting um, is something which other countries don't have. If you're in England, you can apply for a postal vote uh, if you're not going to be near your polling booth. But you, that means you've got to be pretty well organised um, to do that. Do you worry about uh, turnout among Indigenous Australians? There's a report by the AEC after the 2016 election suggesting it was as low as 52%. Yeah, and I guess that's you know about I mean the AEC again it has all these remote polling booths and mm. and it's it's you know it's a I, it's um, a sort of matter I guess of education and them thinking that it will make a difference. Mm. Mm. Uh, you talk about some of the potential uh, democratic innovations I think my favourite is uh, Herbert Payne who uh, uh, moved the, the private senator's bill, uh, you mentioned was a champion of the circular ballot, <laughs> uh, right. which can't, uh, can't you, you can't donkey vote on a circular ballot because everybody is sort of equally spaced around. Um, and in Tasmania they have um, this, what do they call it? The Rogers rotation. Robson rotation. Robson rotation, so that... There's, there's another a, jurisdiction with that too, you're yeah. sitting in it. Oh, is it so? okay, well you all know about that, you know, so that, so that, yeah, so that the people, the donkey vote... Do you find it surprising that we, we haven't moved to that on a national level? I mean, uh, randomising ballot order since 1984 is fair ex-ante. Ex it's, it's, not, it's not fair ex-post. Um, someone gets a systematic advantage in a way they yeah. don't in Robson rotation. Yes, yes. well, that would be something that the, we could work on. I mean, because one of the other things I was going to say about the... Um, when we were talking about uh, the role is that once we got the... Uh, an electoral office at a federal level and then now the Australian Electoral Commission and then the state commissions, they're actually great drivers of the innovation now. Mm. They, they um, have a commitment to getting as many people on the roll as possible and so actually it's sort of gone out of the hands of the citizenry in the way it was in the 19th century and moved really its, its, its bureaucratic drivers. So I think it's our, our electoral system is sort of the result of both our commitment to majoritarian democracy but also um, our happiness to live with, with, with bureaucratic systems. Judy, thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. <laughs> We've now got a uh, bit of uh, 10 minutes for questions, so uh, the floor is yours. We have uh, roving mics. Thank you very much. Uh, 
do you think our system of democracy uh, is viable to some extent from the trend in fake news and dark money coming from millionaires like the Koch, Koch brothers in the United States? And secondly, to what extent has Australian esteemed democratic practices had influence in other countries? And such a wonderful system. Can we? push it round on everybody else. <laughs> well, the first one is I think that the compulsory voting is a little bit of a protection against the fake news because that tends to be, uh, you know, the situation, for example, in the United States is that, that you've got to get the vote out, so you, you push more extreme messages, you play up grievances and fears so that people are motivated to go out and vote. So I think that's a bit of a protection. Um, we haven't been very successful in convincing the rest of the world to take up compulsory voting. Um, I quote Barack Obama, who said it would be a good thing for them to have it in the United States. Um, but the Australian Electoral Commission has pretty active work in um, helping helping countries run elections. I think you know there are. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to reading your book. I wonder, in the book, do you talk about the Australian diaspora with about two million people overseas? How is the AEC doing in giving the vote to them? Yes, my, I was, in the book I say my first vote was in 1972 when I was a postgraduate student at Oxford and I had to trek into University House. Not University House, Australia House. That's where I'm staying tonight. <laughs> um, Look, it does. It's. I'm trying to remember what the details are, but are you, Australians living overseas, um, if they're away for a period of less than six years, uh, you have to still be registered to a, a, an electorate in Australia. Uh, can vote if they've made a permanent home overseas. They they lose that right after about six years. But there are, um, you know polling booths at, at the Australian consuls and embassies across the world, and some of them have sausage sizzles, evidently, to make people <laughs> feel at home. Hi, thank you very much. Um, you mentioned the marriage equality vote and the, yeah. uh, the updating electoral and the growth of that. Has that significantly changed the demographics of the electoral role? Yeah, well, that's what the Australian Electoral Commission said, that of the new people who came on to the electoral role, um, in the lead up to the marriage equality vote, uh, the, the greatest proportion of them, there was a large number of young people. Yeah. People under 24, I think, is what they count as young. Okay, thank you, Judy. Has the recent trend towards pre-poll voting had much concrete effect? Yeah, pre-poll voting, um, well, there's two things I'd say about that. The first is it's, it's a big problem for political parties because they've got to obviously have people doing hand, how to vote cards, you know, um, for a much longer period. The other thing is, is that I think it's, it do, like it's obviously an increased inconvenience and it's been driven by the electoral commissions. So that, you know, it's rather than popular demand. Um, but it does dilute the sort of communal festive nature of election days, I think. And that, um, so, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's a bit of a cost there. I mean, I think that the Saturday election and, and you know, queuing up with the sort of motley crowd of your fellow voters, um, it, it somehow gives, it's, it's a, it's a, it has a ritual aspect, I think, which helps 
um, solidify our commitment to democracy and makes us realise that this is a way of settling differences and there'll be a lot of people who are voting, lining up in the line that we won't agree with, but we've all got an equal right to vote. Do you think school PNCs should be pushing back against uh, pre-poll voting? It's <laughs> because of the reducing yes, their incomes. <laughs> Hello, Judith. Thanks for that. Um, I've got a very quick question. Could you, in a, a sort of one-minute answer, explain how the Senate vote is counted? Oh, no, you have to ask. Since Andrew's mathematics, we see my vote. No, you have to ask Anthony Green. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, like, I, I do a bit about the, about the Senate vote, and it's, and it's one where um, there's been quite big changes over the years about how it's been voted, and we probably still haven't got it quite right. But there is a way in which it's the, we do keep, sort of, you know, we're, we're still fiddling with that, I think, and we haven't. But um, sorry. somebody else might be able to answer that better. My computer. <laughs> my um, Judith, my question tags on to um, the pre-poll thing. Yep. Um, is it still the case um, that the parties don't start paying for their campaigns until the launch date? So that's usually you know two or three weeks before the actual election day. And if that's the case, well, whether it's the case or not. Do that, should they bring their launch forward? Because if they're trying to catch the, the pre-pollers, um, uh, there's a lot of people flapping around out there making up their minds without them, yeah. them getting yeah. the big bang at the end. Um, I don't know about the payment. One, I don't, the, the book, I don't actually look at the debates around funding and, and parties and campaigns. But um, I think it's... it's you know, you're quite right that it makes the launch, it, it changes the nature of the campaign and it means, I guess, that, you know, you can see the way um, in the Wentworth by-election, uh, the people who, who voted two weeks out, um, there was more people voted for David Sharma and then the government had a really bad week in the lead-up to the to the poll and, and that reversed and, and Karen Phelps won. So, but um, it may be a good idea for them to, for parties to launch earlier, but, you know, people, a lot of people have made up their minds, I think, by the time we get to the campaign. There is some irony in the fact that Elizabeth Warren has launched her campaign for 2020, but uh, Scott Morrison has not yet launched his campaign for 2019. <laughs> <laughs> You, uh, you noted tonight, and uh, also in the book, uh, over this side. <laughs> oh, yeah. so, sorry, thank you, sorry, yeah. Um, about how, at least in part, um, compulsory voting and preferential voting were both, in part, at least a response to the um, capabilities of the Labor movement to um, both mobilise voters, but also to organise pre-selections. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, it wasn't only in Australia that the, the Labor movement was sort of emerging at the, at the same time. Um, was there something particular about Australia other than, and in the book you, you mentioned now, our essentially Benthamite nature? Um, but is there, a, is there some other reason that, or any other reason that the, the Labor movement in other countries hasn't, uh, didn't sort of inspire the same change, changes as in Australia? Um, well, I think part of it's to the fact that Labor here is, the party is strong very early. I mean, it, you know, we, we have a Labor government in 1910 and 
Um, whereas in Britain, Labor doesn't really gain that sort of power until well into the 20s. Um, and it's also that we have manhood suffrage very early. I mean, like, Britain doesn't have manhood suffrage until after the First World War. And we've had manhood suffrage since the 1850s and 60s. So there's, that, that makes a huge difference to the political culture. It, all, all of the adult men, pretty well. I mean, there's, it wasn't, because, you know, the, with the states, it, it wasn't exactly uniform. But in, certainly in, in South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales, in the bulk of the population, we've got that. So I think it's, it's that, that, that puts a commitment to democracy you know, when we don't, so we don't have the sort of class suspicion of um, everybody having a vote that I think is still there in the British system um, for quite a, you know, a long time. Because it's, you know, it's, it's partly the Labour, but, but the colonial liberals, a lot of them are, are, are staunch Democrats too, you know. I think there are a lot of hands over there, but if not, there's one over here. Hello, thank you. You mentioned the pre-poll voting diluting the event that is polling day. Were you as devo as many people at the closure of the tally room, which was the ultimate <laughs> of get-togethers on voting day? So, can you just answer that? Were you as devastated as most? Oh, yes. Well, I talked about that, yeah. I mean... You have a nice photo in the book of 1969. Yes, and the Australian archives have got a fantastic series of photos of the, of the tally room. I mean, I could only put in one, but there's about 50, you know, and, and they, they, are, they are really terrific photos. You know, there's, there's a girl in, uh, with high heels and, you know, halfway up the tally board changing them. It's a, it's a, it's a, they're terrific, so you can just go online and look at them. <laughs> but we have election parties to um, substitute for it. Uh, but I mean, as a Canberra person, I probably don't have quite, didn't have quite the same um, commitment or investment in the tally room. I only ever saw it from people's lounge rooms. Hi, hi Judith. Um, looking to the future, um, notwithstanding Andrew's excellent representation of Canberra, um, <laughs> but uh, what thoughts have you got for improving the quality of the representatives that we have? Oh. <laughs> Oh, I, I, that's a bit beyond the scope of this book, actually. But um, I actually think that perhaps the um, election of a few independents, um, you know, like Cathy McGowan, for example, who I think has been an absolutely fantastic, rep, you know, sort of member of parliament, that um, that, that might make the major parties realise they've got to work harder at their candidate selection. Do you like the Bruce Ackerman, James Fishkin idea of Deliberation Day? That every year you should have a day devoted to the discussion of politics and ideas? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't, how would you make it work? They've got a whole book on it. But, uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, time, for, time for, another, for another discussion. Uh, we'll be voting in May, uh, and in Canberra we'll vote for our electorate. But we do expect that in May we'll get a new Prime Minister or we'll get the same Prime Minister. But in recent years, we've been changing Prime Ministers without elections. What's your prediction about whether that trend's going to continue or not? Well, Labor's sort of dealt with it. 
Um, but, it, I mean, I, look, I don't have a prediction, but I think, it, it, you know, you've put your finger on something that's a problem, which is that a lot of, of the electorate feels that when they go and vote, they're actually voting for a candidate, but they feel they're voting for a leader as well. But it's actually Parliament that chooses the Prime Minister, it's not the electorate. And, but you can see in the um, outrage over what happened to Rudd that that was not, you know, people don't really understand, you know, they haven't done my first year Australian politics course, <laughs> everybody else's, and, you know, and understand the way that it's, it's Parliament. And so um, I think it would be good for the, both of the parties to, to, in a sense, lock in that notion, lock in that, that idea, because it's actually what the electorate expects now. But it's happened a number of times since, right? Yeah, it has. But it hasn't done the party that did. It hasn't done the coalition any good doing that because it's it, it it's it's not um, it's not what people expect and want to have, you know that how they think the system should work. Mm. Got time for two more questions? These two here. <coughs> I wonder what uh, reflection you might have on representation of women in Parliament, which is proving um, um, really to be an interesting issue at the moment. Well, I mean, I just chose the obvious one, which is that the Liberal Party has a women, woman problem. <laughs> it's not, um, you know, so I think that's about all I'd have to say on that. And, and uh, clearly there's, again, an expectation in the electorate that the... Uh, the elected, the legislature, to some extent, you know, it's a mirror theory of representation in many ways. That there's that that in some ways it mirrors the demographic <coughs> makeup of the population, and the same we could say that about um, people of, of non-Anglo background as well. It, you know, the, our population has changed quite quickly, and it, it, our legislature doesn't really mirror that yet either. I just want to end, I want to say one thing, which is, you know how we all know, oh, we've got one more question and then I'll, yeah, sorry. Could you please comment on political advertising? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I actually deliberately, in the book, I don't really deal with that. Um, I, it, the book is about the voter and what, what's going on on election day and in our polling booths. And so I don't really look at the issue of political advertising um, and campaign funding. So I know that's a bit of a weak answer. So in order to end on a could, more of an update... Could we push you on one issue? Do you think the, the uh, blackout period is a good idea? Yes. And in, in an era of pre-poll voting, does the, black, does the blackout period still make sense? Doesn't really, does it? I mean, the, the, the other issue, I think, is that um, permanent residents, I think there's some argument that they should be able to vote. Uh, in New Zealand, they can. Um, you know, the no representation, no taxation without representation. Mm. Um, that our notion of a citizen, I think, has become rather um, rigid and a little bit unpleasant in some ways. And uh, people have all sorts of reasons for wanting to perhaps maintain um, their, their citizenship elsewhere. And so I think New Zealand, for example, allows permanent citizens, permanent mm. residents to yes. vote. Yeah. And I was just going to say on the up note I'd like just to end on, when you go into the polling booths, um, we know that we Australia invented the Hills Hoist, but Australia also invented the polling booth. You know, the compartmentalised lining up 
um, which was invented in the 1850s as a way to deal with the crowds of men who now had the vote, they, you know, and, and get them through more quickly. And originally they had pen and ink, but it was too slow, so Adelaide introduced the pencil uh, <laughs> for voting. So that there's a, you know, Australians like to think of themselves as practical innovators, um, and so that's something that we, where our our gift for practical innovation has been realised. Beautiful. Thank you, Judy.